Hello and welcome to the NBA Next podcast presented by Trek. I am Scott Allen and I'm joined by Keith Smith. We are here to talk about what is next financially in the NBA. Keith, we talked about still to be signed free agents last uh, episode last week. We finally have one. Christian Wood has signed a two-year $5.75 million contract with the Los Angeles Lakers, which includes a player option for the 24-25 season. Is this a good move for the Lakers, and what does this mean for Christian Wood moving forward? I think for the Lakers side, this is a home run signing. I think they were in a spot where they were in need of a big. Christian Wood was clearly the best big available um, in free agency. Well, not necessarily the best defensive big for sure. Um, he's not going to bring them much of anything on that end of the floor. But he's a really good offensive player. And I think on the nights when Anthony Davis needs a break, um, whether that's you know less minutes or he just doesn't play at all, or he's out with an injury, which is you know fair to, to come, um, we're going to see him uh, play big minutes. And on those nights, I think if you're the Lakers, you're kind of saying – Hey, the only way we're going to win anyway is to outscore the other team because they just don't have a ton of top end defenders um, on there uh, on the roster is let's go. So, you know, getting wood on those nights, he'll get his 15 to 20 points and it was 10 rebounds and off they'll go. So I think they're in a spot where um, that was a great signing for them, for him. It really comes down to he he needs to rehab his value. It was very clear uh, pretty early on in free agency. No one was willing to give him even a full mid-level contract or anything approaching that any sign and trade or anything. So at that point, the league kind of sends you a message and guys sometimes at his age, because he's not in his you know, mid to late thirties, they will go to a team, play for the minimum, play really well, rehab their value, and then get back on the market in a better spot. Dennis Schroeder just did that with the Lakers. Had a really big season and ended up landing a mid-level deal uh, from the Raptors. So Christian Wood can certainly do that, but he's got to he's gotta play well, first of all. And second, he's got to you know, stay locked in and stay intense and not be you know, goofy in the, you know, uh, do, you know, bad locker room stuff and off the court stuff and bad professionalism that's happened now with both the Rockets and the uh, Mavericks. And that's, you know, led a lot to teams saying, eh, it's just not worth it to, to give him that kind of money. Yeah. It, it's a good fit, especially if Anthony Davis ends up having injury issues, which we know he always does. So he would, could fill in quite a bit from a minute standpoint, if that happens and that could raise his value. Uh, is this Lakers roster? I mean, what are the chances by the trade deadline? This is a completely different roster. Very uh, slim. I, I think. I, okay. I, I mean, they could make some moves for sure um, with the, this team, but they're going in with, all right, we've got the guys we need, you know, with, with the additions of, Gabe Vincent and then Christian Wood and then uh, Torian Prince re-signing D'Angelo Russell, obviously keeping Austin Reeves, re-signing Rui Hachimura. They feel like they've got a roster that's good enough to you know finish the job. And they were in the West Finals last year. Yeah, the Nuggets took took them out, but they they were right there. So I think we're in a spot where it really is the Lakers are, are ready to go. Now, yeah. They've got things lined up to have some tradable contracts if they need to. A guy like D'Angelo Russell, 
he waived the ability to have a no trade clause, de facto no trade clause, uh, because he's on effectively a one year deal with bird rights if he opts out. But, you know, with him waiving that ability to block a trade, that means, yeah, he could be in play trade wise. But the Lakers, they're, they're not thinking that not at this point of the year. The idea is we've got our team. We've fixed this roster over the course of the last really only about, you know, six, seven months. Uh, you know, maybe I guess we're approaching eight months since they made the Hachimura trade, but we've rebalanced things. We've got everybody now that we feel like we need to move forward. And that that's what they're going to look to do. All right. This is a great transition into our mailbag. You posted, uh, you know, a couple tweets, seeing if any fans had some questions for you to answer. And, uh, the one question that came in was dealing with the Lakers. So we'll dive into the mailbag here. Uh, the scenario that at Sherlock KH2 is asking is if LeBron opts in, is there a way for Christie Vando Reddish Hayes to get extended if they play at the level the Lakers are happy with? And then the subsequent question would trading D and creating a trade exception help by lowering their tax? Yeah, I'll answer the second one first. We we don't know that it would create a trade exception if they traded D'Angelo Russell because we don't know what that trade would look like. And we also don't know that it would help uh, lower the tax either. And that's going to be one where if you're going to make a trade like that, if you're the Lakers, really any team in that situation, what you're weighing is, is lowering our tax bill or getting out of the tax entirely. Is that worth the offset of losing a talented player that maybe – you know, we don't have a built-in replacement for on the roster. And some would say between Reeves and Gabe Vincent, they should be fine. And they probably should be if they trade D'Angelo Russell. But the question would be, what are you getting back for him? Because he's not a guy the Lakers would straight salary dump. Um, That's not going to be a thing. And he's not a guy that the Lakers are going to just give away, just to give away. He's too good for that. So, so that part of it, you know, it's, it's hard to answer today. Um, the first part of it, if they, if LeBron opts in, um, they cannot do extensions with Reddish and Hayes. Those guys won't really be extension eligible in any kind of meaningful way. They could resign them. Those guys are on minimum deals. So we'll see what that looks like. Lakers will be able to give them a minor bump over that minimum, but we'll see where that goes. Uh, Max Christie will will be extension eligible um, at some point, I believe. I have to look um, and see where he's at um, timing-wise with that. He may not be either. He may be a guy who's definitely ticketed for free agency. And then Jared Vanderbilt, we know he'll be re- he'll be extension eligible, and they can you know offer him that kind of that mid level. Uh, type extension money, uh, which is, uh, I like to call it the Dinwiddie. Um, They could do that with him. So we'll see. But I think for now, the Lakers are kind of a little bit more in, let's see how it all plays out before they're worried at any point of, let's think about extending any of these guys. I mean, Vanderbilt's the only guy of that group outside of D'Angelo Russell, who's clearly, you know, going to be a part of their rotation. Uh, We don't know with Reddish, Hayes, and Christie if they'll be in the rotation or not. I'm sure at points they'll play, but we don't know. So that's, that's, you know, there's a lot of wait and see to happen with that whole group. Is that Vanderbilt contract extension, is that a, you know, a sexy enough name to want to do a next contract series on him? 
Yeah, I think probably down the line. I I, I think we, we can explore that just because of the mechanics and what it would mean for, you know, a guy coming off a deal that's, you know, $4.7 million for this coming season, what the different options are. Because I do think that that that, that is, is an interesting case because it's a little bit different. Okay. Moving on to the next one, uh, Martin Schaub, 23. He is asking, what is the difference between an Exhibit 9 and an Exhibit 10 contract, which is super fitting because the Lakers just signed four of those uh, kind of contracts (laughs) and more teams are starting to flush out the rest of their roster here. So what is the difference, Keith? Yeah, we're going to have hundreds of these signed in the next uh, month or so as we lead up to um, uh, training camp and then in training camp. The, 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 to keep it relatively simple, Exhibit 9 contracts, that, those are what the NBA calls summer contracts, training camp contracts. You, you, there's different kind of terminology that they use, but what an Exhibit 9 is, is that that means you're bringing the player in, um, with a chance to make the roster. It's a fully non-guaranteed contract, and they have a chance. What's different about it is it's this type of contract, unlike a standard non-guaranteed contract where you bring the guy in, then the guy plays, and then you just kind of go. In Exhibit 9, the real intention for these was they'd have them on the roster over the summer, and then you go. But what it really is is it is – um into a spot where what happens is they um will push into or sorry they they don't count against your uh team salary so for your um your your team salary for the um the uh regular towards the cap or towards the tax they they don't count towards either one of those um so that's that in exhibit 10 which you can't have an exhibit 10 that doesn't also include an exhibit 9 um so that's just they they're functionally the same thing but the add on with an exhibit 10 is it can be converted to a two way deal so what happens in that situation is the teams can then turn around and turn that into a two-way contract. And every once in a while, what you see is if a team has a two-way uh, opening on their roster, what they'll do is they will bring um, a bunch of guys in, kind of let them battle it out. And then the one who they think fits best or fills a need or they just like as a prospect or whatever it is, they'll convert that contract into a two-way contract. So that's that's the difference with an Exhibit 10. And then an Exhibit 10 can also have a bonus where a player can get, it's I believe it's now between five and 75000 um, where if they stay in the G League for a set amount of time, they can then achieve that bonus um, for staying there by signing. So it's a way for them to get a little bit of extra money. And often what you'll see is teams will kind of use those to kind of boost the the guaranteed salary for a player um, who is going to go to the G League anyway. They'll throw an Exhibit 10 with that bonus on them, kind of saying, hey, we know we're not going to have room for you on our roster, but we want to keep working with you, play for our G League team, and then you'll get this little bit of extra money. And that that's you know been something that's been very common uh, over the last several years. How do the mechanics work if a t- player ends up making the actual roster? Does that Exhibit 10 or 9 contract just get ripped up and they – have to sign a brand new standard contract? No, it actually just converts into a standard contract. So what happens then is it converts into a standard one year non-guaranteed contract. um, And it would fully guarantee on uh, uh, the the league-wide date of January 10th. 
um, is what when all contracts guarantee. So that that's where that goes um, with those. So they just immediately turn and convert and they kind of go from there. All right. Noah Magaro George, apologize if I said that wrong. Uh, curious to know why the Spurs haven't extended Vassell and what would that look like on paper? Yeah, the first part he probably hasn't been extended because he, he's not a max extension guy. And generally what we see um, with the rookie scale extensions is they happen um, right away for the guys who are the max guys. So in this class, guys like Anthony Edwards, uh, LaMelo Ball, um, Think am I, uh, Tyrese Halliburton, those guys got their their max deals right away and, and off we went. And then Desmond Bain got the kind of kind of a max, but not exactly the designated max because he's got some bonus money in there. But essentially, if he does everything we think he may, he'll, he'll be a max guy. For Devin Vassell, he's not not in that level. He's a tier or two down from some of those guys. So I think that is part of why it waits. Now, what it would look like, I predicted back when I wrote, you know, before the off season, uh, predict going through the 2020 draft class and what uh, they could extend for. I predicted a five-year, $115 million uh, contract for Vassell. I felt like about, you know, somewhere between 20 and 25 million a year felt right for him. Uh, maybe that's a little light, you know, it could be closer to the 25 uh, range, but I kind of split the difference on that. And my idea on that was the Spurs, they locked up Keldon Johnson to a really nice value contract. I think they'd like to do the same with Vassell. So that way it's just one less thing to have to deal with. But we could see this turn into a situation where San Antonio looks at it and says, you know, we're okay with this kind of going into to next summer. Uh, continue to leave us with all sorts of flexibility with Devin Vassell as cap holds about 17.6 million or so. Um, so we, we can run with that. It's not going to impact anything and let's see if he can get and stay healthy through the whole season and then we'll figure it out next year. But it, it wouldn't surprise me here if um, before the start of the season, which is the deadline uh, to get these rookie scale extensions done, if we still saw an extension happen for uh, Devin Vassell. But I think for now, you know, we're, we're kind of still in wait and see mode. At Ben Hart 31 is asking which contract signed this summer has the most interesting incentive or guaranteed date structure. Yeah, that's a good um, question. It was, it, it that, that one, it, it's hard because incentives are there. Some teams like to use them pretty extensively. Other teams are not as big on using uh, the, the incentive uh, type of stuff. Um, some teams are big on using the, the declining structure um, for players, especially often with, with older players. Um, we, we will see that a lot. I think uh, Desmond Bain, for sure, is a good example of a player who um, is going to have some uh, really interesting um you know, stuff going on because he's got about 5.5 million or so um, in um, uh, their their unlikely bonuses right now. It's also a little hard because it's a it's still a touch early to know what all those bonuses are, because what happens often with bonuses, let's say we make, uh, you know, we throw in a contract, a you know, one million dollar a year unlikely bonus to play in 75 games or more what teams will do is they'll do that because what happens 
pretty regularly in these situations is let's say a guy played in 74 games. Well, that becomes an unlikely bonus, which means it doesn't go into the, to the team salary calculation towards the, the cap. And then what happens is that could free up a little bit of wiggle room under the cap to do something. So that's, that's something we often see because they'll do that. That was very, very famously a part of how the Brooklyn Nets, when they signed Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, they were able to put in all these unlikely bonuses to then create cap space, which they ultimately used for DeAndre Jordan, which didn't exactly work out great. Um, but the, the, the process w- was there, even if the execution maybe wasn't. But what they did was they put in things like, if we remember, right, Kevin Durant, they knew was going to miss uh, that whole first season. So they put in unlikely bonuses based off of games played. Kyrie Irving had a whole host of you know, bonuses. I, I think I, I know that might've been my first year working with you when we went through Kyrie had like eight or 10 different bonus combinations. We had to kind of work through and, you know, did he hit this one? Did he not? And kind of go through all of them. Cause in some cases, uh, bonuses stack other cases, they don't, and it can get very uh, complex and confusing, but that that's the way you, you kind of, kind of can, can do those sorts of things um, with bonuses to kind of get there. I think a really interesting structure, and I'm going to cheat to answer this a little bit, is uh, Jordan Clarkson's deal with the Jazz. And why I'm cheating a little is because it was a renegotiation and extension. So he got that bump in money this year up to about $23 million, And then he got, uh, got in a spot where they gave can drop his contract, which they do down to about 14 million and then about 14.3 million in, in the, the second and third year of that extension. But then they also threw some bonuses on there as well, which you know, will we'll factor in for him at some point. And they, they kind of staggered bonuses the way, way they work out. There's, you know, about 1.2 million or so in total bonuses over the course of the three years. So that was an interesting uh, structure for them. So I, I think we're, we're in a spot where you see some teams, one team that loves to do the bonus stuff is the New York Knicks. They did that with Dante DiVincenzo. Um, he got, I believe it was, you know, somewhere around 700,000 or so, um, maybe 750,000 in, in uh, bonuses per year for him. That's a, the, the Knicks, yeah, books are loaded with guys with bonuses in their deals that they love to do that um, with, with that. And then I'll throw two more just very quickly, the Houston Rockets. And this is kind of where you got to be cautious with the initial reporting on these things. Um, Jock Landale reported as an eight year, 32 or eight years, four year, $32 million uh, contract for 8 million a year. And everybody's like, Oh my gosh, 8 million a year for this guy who was on a minimum and all this. But year one is the only guaranteed year on that. They did a very similar type thing with Jeff Green where they gave him some bonus uh, money in there. And it was two, it was reported initially as like two years, I think 19 million or something like that. And then it turned out, well, there's some uh, uh, non-guaranteed on the end, or I guess a team option I'm on there as well. And so a lot of things like that. So those are, I know that's not a direct answer to the question, but there are definitely some, some fun things that teams did. Kyrie Irving has bonuses in his contract, which are, I'll call them uh, motivation bonuses. Let's you know, try try to keep you going. Cam Johnson has a bunch. Cam Johnson's also on a, 
contract that declined it declines a couple years and then goes back up in his final year so that that's a fun structure and if you want to see any of these just hop over to spot track look up the player and you'll be able to see all of this laid out right there for you yeah there's a few players i'm going to add on to you because they not only have likely unbon- uh, likely incentives they also have unlikely incentives that could hit so like players like cam johnson chris middleton yep. uh dejounte murray you know, depending on how well the team does and what those incentives are, those are players that their cap hit could go down if they miss for some reason or could go up if they hit whatever thresholds that those are. And we don't have those at our disposable right now, which will come. But, you know, I, I love that teams are super flexible as far or sorry, flexible is the wrong word, creative as far as the structure of these deals, because there it's not cookie cutter, you know, like mm-hmm. you said, some are going to have incentives, whether it's likely, unlikely, both, uh, right out of a gate that Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, you're right. Those, there was like eight, eight, uh, the 10, whatever they were, but it was not <laughs> only just for the player, it was the team makes the playoffs yep. or the team wins 40 games. I mean, it, it was like, shaking our head and laughing at some of those incentives but they're in there for a reason so that out of the gate their cap hit is low and then exactly increase if it needs to especially with the cap maximum going up you know that's just a way to massage the cap similar in the nfl where you can massage a cap any way you want is just if you're going to want to deal with the dead cap in the back end of the contract or not um a second part to this uh, question was, did you notice any trends or terms of guaranteed non-structure incentive structures? And before you answer, I'm going to jump in on this because I have started seeing a trend with more so these designated extensions, designated rookies. Um, we are starting to not see player options. Uh, we are whether it's the designated veteran extensions that we've started seeing between Jalen Brown and Devin Booker, the uh, rookie extensions, we are not seeing player options in those, uh, the Morant, the Williamson, the Garland, those new ones, you know, those did not have player options in them. I don't think the newer ones that were signed had player options. Um, we've seen some trade bonuses in there, but even though in the designated veteran extensions, even those trade bonuses are not for the full 15. So I think we're starting to see a, a shift in if you're if we're going to give you the maximum amount of money that we can give you, we're not going to give you all the bells and the whistles that could hit from that standpoint. Yeah, especially on that first extension the first big one so guys like edwards and ball and halliburton it's rare that on a rookie scale extension that it comes with a uh, player option on the end you have to be already fully established as an all nba level guy so like jason tatum did get one i believe donovan mitchell got one too and that's because they had already in the first few years of their career had established themselves as all right we're all nba level talents I love Anthony Edwards, LaMelo Ball, Tyrese Halliburton, Desmond Bain. I, 
I'm going to continue to include Vane because he might as well be a max uh, extension. He's just so close to it. Um, it's kind of like Tobias Harris a couple years ago when it was like, it's not a max. And everybody loved to tell you that. And it's like, okay, it's like $5 less. Like, what are we doing? Um, so I, I'll include the, those guys in there. So I think what happens um, with those guys is great players, but they're just not at that all NBA level yet. I think they'll get there, at least a couple of them. I think Edwards and Halliburton have great chances at being all NBA level guys. And I think they probably will get there. So yeah, that, that teams are holding fast on those player options. Now a guy like Anthony Davis, when he signed his, that designated veteran extension, um, he did get a player option on the final year, but you kind of know, all right, it's, you're, you're fine. Cause at that point it's like, all right, you know, what are we going to do? We're not going to lose Anthony Davis over, you know, being silly with, with a player option type of deal here. So, so that's kind of, you know, a piece of that where I think you have to, you know, look at it a little bit and say, okay, that's interesting. The trade bonuses. It's funny. Trade bonuses. I think the, the, the league and uh, players and the agents, they're getting smart at looking at and saying, you're already on a max, like in the, your raises are going to get you to where you need to be. Do we need to put a trade bonus in or not? Like again, some of the younger guys whose contracts maybe run out a little longer. Yeah. I do want the trade bonus because the 8% raises are probably going to be outpaced by 10% cap growth. So if that happens, I want to be able to get, you know, might only be, you know, another million dollars or something, but I want it if I can get it. So teams generally don't get too hung up on those. They're, they're usually pretty good with that. I think if we say, were there any trends, I think teams were pretty stingy this year, despite the increased effort to introduce spending on going big for free agents. The Houston Rockets, major exception. We know they 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 were a cap space team and they kind of went all out on signing free agent players in the like. But for the most part on signing free agents, this was a yet kind of and maybe it's a continuing a trend of teams saying we're we're good. We're not I, I, I hesitate to say they punted on free agency because there was plenty of free agent movement for sure, but just loading up cap space to go do it. We didn't see that. We saw teams kind of say, "Yo, we're gonna we're gonna go a, a different route with this. Where we're gonna kind of go um it, down down a path of we're gonna still build through trades. We're gonna build through uh, the draft, extending our own guys. And a lot of the free agents, it was either exceptions or it was you know minimum deals, which is kind of continuing a trend that I, I I don't think we're ready to see anybody change just yet because there hasn't been a reason to change that. Uh, philosophy on team building from either the team or the player side. Yeah, the trend that I've noticed and I, I believe we've talked about is the trend of the extension. And I think we're going to see even more extensions hit because it's just a way to get a guy locked up. And if they need to move him at the trade deadline or the next offseason, they already have term and they can move them easier than having to clear the books to get cap space to be able to sign whoever you want. So I think free agency to a certain extent is, you know, being watered down more so than we have seen in the past. So, I mean, that's the trend that I'm seeing, but you know, I, I could be debunked next off season or in two off seasons and we have a massive free agency. Yeah. And I think what's also changed that a little bit, Scott is 
we are no longer in a position where uh, teams are, we're, we're not going to see a giant cap spike where it is, hey, it, it totally benefits me to just wait and then hit free agency and I'm going to, you know, double my contract or whatever it may be for a lot of these guys, especially the star level guys. That's not coming. The flattened cap says even more, it's more likely, hey, just sign an extension. And like it or not, as we've talked about often, you can then turn around and say, see you later. Like I'm, I'm ready to go. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I want to trade and let's let's go, go uh, through it down that path. So it, it is, uh, you know, slightly different the way these kind of things have come together here a little bit. At I, a conserve mom is asking, what are the Sacramento Kings going to do with all the centers and more with respect to, are they going to have to cut and wave some of them during training camp or, you know, what's the differences between all of their contracts at this point? Yeah, the Kings are in, in kind of a funky spot with the center position because it's one, it's a position where DeMontis Sabonis is the starter and you don't need much more than about 15 minutes a night behind him. Of course, you want to be protected if there's an injury or anything like that. But the Kings went ahead and they re-signed Trey Lyles. Now, Trey Lyles probably more four than five, but can't play the five. Uh, was a good rotation player for Sacramento. They re-signed him to two and uh, two years, $16 million a year deal. Flat, $8 million each season, fully guaranteed. They also brought in just recently JaVale McGee on a fully guaranteed veteran minimum contract. They re-signed Alex Len, who was by the end of the year and into the postseason was the Kings backup center. Uh, They re-signed him to a fully guaranteed veteran minimum contract. So now you're, even if we take Lyles out of the mix, now you're kind of, there's two guys, fully guaranteed deals behind Sabonis. But they are also bringing in Nerlens Noel on a, a veteran minimum deal, but it's three hundred thousand guaranteed. It'll bump up to six hundred thousand if he makes the opening night roster, and then fully guaranteed on the league wide date. So hefty guarantee there for for Nerlens Noel, and then the former two way player Nemias Queta. They signed him to a two year uh, minimum deal, um, which puts him on the books at you know that two million or so um, amount, two hundred thousand guaranteed for him. He bumps up to 500,000, so just a tick less than Noel, and he's coming in as well um, in that group. So that's an awful lot of guys. That's you know four, five if you count Lyles, guys behind Sabonis for a guy who generally, you know, he's either durable or plays hurt um, as he did last year. And again, you're talking 15 minutes a night at most um, that you need to fill. So uh, my guess is, they're just going to kind of let it be an open competition. If JaVale McGee has plenty left and can offer a veteran voice in the locker room, it looks like he's good. He'll probably stick. I think Alex Len has an inside track because he was already there. They have obviously a lot of familiarity with Queta because he's been there the last two seasons on two way deals. So I think that there's still, you know, some obvious interest in him as a developmental project. And then Noel, this is kind of a, Hey, we're going to pay you 300 K just to see what you look like. And if it comes in and like, Holy cow, he looks good. He looks healthy. He can really run and jump and all those things. Maybe he gets a spot over McGee or over Queta. So, so we're going to see, but it's, it's basically going to be, Hey, let's have a battle Royal behind DeMonta Sabonis and who let the best man win. And we'll figure it out from there. 
which I have no issue with. I mean, at this mm-hmm. point, get what you can. If in if some of them stick, then you know maybe you get a second round pick out of them if you need to trade them in the it, you know the trade deadline, or at least you have viable backups. So I don't have any issues with that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and the one thing to note with um, Queta. He's in a little bit of a weird spot where he will not be eligible to play for the Kings in the G League this year. Um, his contract is not convertible um, because of the, the structure. It's a standard non-guaranteed contract, so there's no conversion ability. And the guaranteed amount they gave him of 200000 that's greater than the 75000 amount you can guarantee a guy and still have them play for your G League team. So so this is kind of, you know, uh, make or break time for, for Namias Cueta with the Kings. Either he's going to be there on the regular season roster, at least into the start of the year we'll see if it lasts the whole year or not or they're 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 gonna move on and and kind of let him go uh from from there so it's uh you know this is you know my guess is uh, let's see and if you win a spot you win a spot great let's move on and let's go from there real quick you mentioned about the g league so can they not waive him and then re-sign him and then him go to the g league or it's hard and fast that this rule is in place yeah, so what it is is if you give a player more than 75000 which is that kind of minimum bonus amount in the G League, you then can't have them on your G League roster. Um, you know, the, the, the coming season. So what happens is that's to kind of close a loophole mm-hmm. of saying, hey, we're going to give you a minimum deal. Then we're going to waive you. Don't sign with anybody else and kind of sit in reserve for us because we already paid you the most you could have made in the NBA anyway. And then if we need you later, we'll call you up. We'll sign you. We'll do whatever we have to do um, on a 10-day or a full contract and kind of go from there. That closes that loophole of giving a big guaranteed amount mm-hmm. to then encourage a player to just say stashed with your G League team. They, they kind of close that down through that that uh, process by limiting how much a guarantee can be. And because he got 200 k guaranteed already, that's obviously higher than the 75 k allowed, so he's no longer eligible to play. He could play if he was 75 k or less guaranteed. Um, he could play for the G League team. He has one more year. You can play for a team on a two-way um, contract for up to three years in a row. Um, and he could just go as an affiliate player if he was waived. But in this case, the guarantee amount is too much for him to go down to the G League. At Rob McCraw has a non-financial question. Uh, how many regular season wins equals a successful season for the Boston Celtics? Um, I don't think there's a number on that. It's, this is about did they win or not. For, for the Celtics now that they, they are, uh, um, they, this is about, did you get to the finals or win the finals? That's the success measure for Boston. They, you know, cause they could, could kind of slow play the regular season and win 45 to 48 games. And if they make the finals, everybody's happy with it. They could dominate the regular season, win 65 games. And if they don't make the finals, it wasn't a successful year. So it, their, their regular season, I don't want to say the regular season is meaningless for the Celtics because it has meaning. You want to, you know, create the easiest path for yourselves. They, 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 with the big trade, 
getting Chris Apps, Porzingis for Marcus Smart, losing Grant Williams. They've got a lot of stuff to figure out uh, lineup-wise, rotation-wise, how they're going to play, just style of play, all that stuff. So that's where the regular season importance comes in. But when we judge this season sometime at the end of June, we're going to judge it on did they get to the finals, did they win the finals. That's going to be what matters, not you know how many regular season games did they win. No one's going to really care about that one way or the other. He has a bonus question dealing with this new cup tournament. Is there going to be any meaning for a successful season with this new tournament in play? Yeah, it's that's fun question because we don't know. Yeah, right. We, we don't know if a team, but let's say it's the, I'm going to use the Orlando Magic, right? They're, they're, they're kind of uh, on the up and coming in the East or the Oklahoma City Thunder in the West or the Utah Jazz in the West. Um, do they really prioritize, hey, let's try to win this thing, really get ourselves some momentum and really kind of push ourselves forward into the uh, you know, remainder of the regular season? I think that is a, you know, that that's a place where you can, you know, kind of see teams doing that. If it's a team like the Nuggets or the Bucks or the Warriors, even the Celtics and Lakers, uh, those kind of teams that they, their goal is to win a title or compete for a title. I don't know that they're going to push too hard to win the, the cup. What I think will happen ultimately with the cup is everybody will play it and treat it much like a regular season game, which they do double count as those early group play games. And then it'll be when we get into that third or fourth group play game, it'll be, okay, we have a chance to get into the actual tournament phase of this thing. And I think then what you're going to see the teams do is then it will become, all right, let's try to win. Because the big thing that we have to remember is you put a something to win in front of a group of competitive people. And that's, you know, players, coaches, front office, everybody in the NBA. Generally, you know, it's pretty rare when you find somebody who's not extremely competitive in trying to win, you know, if not always in the bigger picture, because yes, I get it. Teams tank and all those things. But when, when they're in games, they try to win that, that individual game and they'll do their best. Sometimes organizational goals go in a different direction from allowing them to do their best, but they will really try to push uh, to, to win those games. So I think what, what happens here is, when it comes time for, all right, we're close now. We have a chance to actually win this thing. Then you're going to see teams really put a priority. They're going to try to go hard to try to win it because, it, because again, competitive. They're going to want to get those bonuses. Like people have said, you know, the cash payout for a guy like LeBron James, does he really care? He doesn't care, but the guys on his roster that are on minimum deals that have made you know comparatively little money uh, in NBA terms, he'd like those guys to get that bonus for sure. So, so that'll be where where you know it'll come in with meaning, and then over time it'll take on a meaning much like the uh, you know in season cup tournaments, whatever you want to call them in uh, you know uh, soccer, which they're trying to kind of model, have meanings in, in the various leagues. But those cups have also been around in some cases for hundreds of years. So you're in, a, or at least over a hundred years. So you're in a position where they, they've created meaning for those over time. That's where the NBA is going to look to get to with this. Yeah, it, it definitely is fascinating on multiple levels. Like you said, the, the Thunder or the Orlando Magic, they could come out of nowhere and win this. And then, you know, you get the bonus money that's on top of it. Being the first of this uh, iteration that they're trying to do, those players are going to want their name on the first of this, uh, you know, this tournament. So I think that's another incentive to, you know, just 
for some teams. If they even sniff that they have a chance, they're going to want to push even harder just to be the first of that, you know, uh, of this cup tournament. So it'll be fascinating to see how it really flushes out if it's a success or not from a rating standpoint. You know, it just adds more meaning during the regular season, which we've all been yep. asking for. So if, if anything comes out of it, at least that will, you know, have, uh, you know, even if it's Orlando Magic versus the, uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder in this cup final, that's going to be more eyeballs than you normally would on a typical, you know, January or December, whenever, I can't remember when it's done, but, you know, it's just a, a win-win from that standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that that's where the NBA will, hey, we're going to pump, you know, these young up and coming teams and they'll really, you know, drive all the focus there and we'll, we'll see. But I, I think in general, the, the group play games are going to have the same meaning as a regular season game, which we've seen over the years. Some teams care more than others care and that changes based on individual circumstance. But yeah, it's I, I'm excited for it. I'm going to take the kind of optimistic approach of this is going to be fun and it's going to be good. And we'll just kind of go from there. Sticking with the Celtics at Diker Stewart is asking how much longer will Dimitri Demetrius Jackson's dead cap remain on the Boston Celtics cap sheet. Well, the first thing I would do is encourage our friend to go look at the Boston Celtics <laughs> multi-year view on spot track. And you can see that for yourself. Um, the, the answer though, I'll, I'll be, I'll be kind of generous and answered here one year. This is it. This is the final year. Finally of that, uh, you know, long stretched money for Demetrius Jackson. And, and for those who aren't familiar, he is one of the smaller stretched amounts. It's, it's about uh, $93,000. Uh, and what happened in that situation was the summer that the Boston Celtics were going to sign Gordon Hayward. And then they ultimately also traded for Kyrie Irving later that summer. But when they were trying to create the, the cap space to go sign Gordon Hayward, they were a little shy of what they needed to be able to do. So one of the things that they did, which was kind of an interesting process, they picked up and then guaranteed uh, money for Demetrius Jackson. They picked up a team option um, and then gave, uh, uh, which was at the end of a one of these kind of, um, now we would say it's the second round pick exception deal, but it was the equivalent of that back in the day. They picked up that team option so that then they could stretch that money over more years, um, over several more years um, as they did that. So what, what they, they ended up doing, I believe it was a seven year stretch that put him under contract for three years. And then what happened was they were able to stretch that for seven years in that minor small guaranteed amount was that was enough to give them enough wiggle room to add Gordon Hayward and then to give them enough wiggle room to, I believe, stay under the tax and then also um, uh, complete the trade for Kyrie Irving later. We'll, we'll, and we'll leave it at that. Cause that was the, that, that was where it was happy and everything was great. And they, they looked like they were going to be an awesome team moving forward. And, and we'll, we'll kind of forget everything that happened after the, the games actually started for that group. But that's, that's where that, Demetrius Jackson money uh, comes from on the books, and this is the final year of it. Ben Glover is asking, do you believe Evan Fournier will be traded before the start of the season? And if so, who do you think would be willing to take him on? Before the start of the season, I don't think so. I think, you know, outside of uh, the Knicks getting involved in a Damian Lillard or James Harden trade or some other random guy or involved as a third team for some reason, which I don't really think makes a lot of sense for them. 
I, they, there's really, no one's going to make a big trade now. Um, those are the two that are hanging out there. That's kind of uncommon, uh, you know, for a post Labor Day situation like that to occur. So I think the Knicks will have um, uh, Evan Fournier on the books uh, going into next season, and they will just kind of uh, uh, this uh, meaning this upcoming season at about eighteen point eight million, um, and then he'll be a trade chip all the way into to the regular season. They, they've made it pretty clear he's not going to be a part of the rotation by any chance so he'll be you know well out of things they also kind of doubled down at his position and added Dante DiVincenzo so this is a team that at the kind of two three spots where uh, Fournier plays they've got RJ Barrett and Quentin Grimes as the presumed starters and then you've got Josh Hart Dante DiVincenzo coming off the bench and we'll even throw in some Emmanuel quickly because he plays in the at the two uh, quite a bit as well um, in lineups along Alongside Jalen Brunson, so so they're they're more than covered. Fournier is just no longer a part of things. But what the Knicks have then is when we get into the season and it starts, if they say, well, you know, we really need you know a backup power forward for Julius Randle, which they don't really have on the roster right now, or we need to upgrade the you know center position, or you know what well, we're gonna we're gonna trade R.J. Barrett and try to really upgrade and get a major starting level wing in here and they can throw Fournier's uh, almost 19 million into a trade without removing a rotation player which is always you know advantageous to a team to be able to do that when you have a big number like that that's just kind of sitting there on your books and it's not like it prevented them from doing anything this summer because they weren't going to be a cap space team anyway so just hang on to it and then when the right trade arises you go and if worse comes to worse and this goes all the way they'll decline that team option very likely unless they're putting them into a trade for the 24-25 season and that'll be the end of the Evan Fournier time. Now, on Evan Fournier's side, I'm sure he would love to be traded, especially to somewhere where he could play. And I think he's shown uh, with France. I know it was a very disappointing World Cup for France, but he's shown he can still play. So it's not a situation where he he absolutely can't play and he's completely washed up and he's just a contract number now. That's not the case at all. He can still play. There's just not a role for him anymore on this Knicks team because younger, better options have emerged in his place. Ben also has a great question coming off of the JaVale McGee um, wave and now signing with Sacramento. He wants to know, how come some teams get set-offs when they're waived and some teams do not? Yeah, let's start with set-off is maybe the stupidest term. Just call it it offset like everybody else would. I, I don't understand why it's not called offset money, like, that's what we would call that in any other uh, situation. <laughs> but, you know, that's just me on my soapbox complaining about s- silly CBA terms. Um, but the, to answer Ben's question, um, when a player is um, signed to a new team, um, what happens is it's generally upon their waiver. Um, it's occasionally on the signing of the contract, but always upon the waiver. And especially so if the player takes a buyout, which is a, a change in the structure to the contract, um, though that player will take, um, they will agree to set off, which means if they sign with another team and it can be dictated, whether it's another NBA team or another team entirely, it could be the player signs, you know, overseas somewhere with a team, a portion of the money that they sign for gets 
called called set off and that comes off the books of the the team that waived him so in the case of javale mcgee javale mcgee um agreed to set off when he was waived by the dallas mavericks so what happens is a portion of his uh, contract that he signed with the sacramento kings that money will come off of the dallas mavericks books the key part of this is set off money is not applied until after the first season when, when it's eligible to happen. So in this case, Dallas sees no cap nor tax relief from the set off from McGee until the season completes. But then the future years, um, they will see set off come off those future years um, because they waived and stretched McGee. So down the line, you will see that, but it doesn't happen automatically in these cases. Cause what they don't want to do is, Hey, that now got you under the tax apron and you can do other things that you couldn't do otherwise or something like that. They basically say, no, you got to hold and then this will come in. Um, it's just another piece, much like bonuses it's an after the season accounting that has to be factored in as we move forward uh, with, with all this process diane cooper koopa wants to know where is blake griffin yeah blake griffin where you know adam himmelsbach of the boston globe had some reporting that basically says the Celtics would love to bring him back, which matches everything I've heard. The question is if Blake wants to, one, does he even want to play again? And two, does he you know, want to play in Boston? Blake Griffin was very open. He enjoyed his time with the Celtics. He loved the city of Boston. He was very happy there. But everything else that you hear is his family stayed on the West Coast and he misses his family. Um, so it sounds like if he's going to play again, it's either going to be one or two things. It's either going to be he signs and plays for a team on the West Coast or at least closer to the West Coast where he can be around his family more, which no one can argue with, especially for a guy you know, at this point in his career in life uh, for Blake Griffin. Or what he's what could happen is this could, he could be somebody who, if he stays in shape and says, you know, I'm going to leave the option open, maybe we see him sign a little later in the season and he misses training camp and all the other stuff that veterans generally don't like. Maybe even misses the beginning part of the year and comes in and says, hey, it can be a part of the stretch run. And that could be something where, all right, hey, Boston, you look like a title contender and you could still use another big. All right, I'll come in for the last, you know, uh, 30, 40 games here, be a part of things and through the playoffs. And then that way I spent half the year with, with the family and all that. Now I'm going to come in for the stretch run. So I, I don't know that we're going to see Blake Griffin uh, back in Boston at all. But if we do, I think it'll probably be a little later in the season or we see him play somewhere else if it's earlier in the year. Last question comes from me uh, with the whole <laughs> Caleb Williams discussion that's came up this week, a number number one overall pick. We don't, we're not going to go down the NFL route and all that. It made me go back and think a few years ago, there was conversation of, you know, potentially changing the lottery system, going to a rotating revolving or a wheel or anything like that. So my question to you is, has there been any kind of discussion with the NBA draft lottery system changing? I know we're in the new CBA, so you know that was probably tabled. But have you heard anything new from if they want to tweak the lottery system or not? I haven't. I they they you know they did it 
gosh, what was that? that was probably five, six ish years ago now uh, when they tweaked to this current format, which is a flattened odds for the top three teams. And then the fourth pick is also decided by the lottery. Um, that, that was a, an attempt to basically stop the race to the bottom from day one of the season. Whereas like, Hey, you, you, it's fine. If you're committing to being a bad team, you don't need to be horrendously bad in October, in November and December. Like you can just kind of be naturally bad and play it out because it, you know, one, two or three, you're going to have the same odds going into the lottery or not. I think the league is relatively happy with where that's. Uh, how that has worked, I should say. Um, the addition of the play-in tournament, what that has done is you have very few teams that are openly tanking for months and months and months. It's generally sometime around the first of the year, maybe leading into the trade deadline, where some teams say, all right, you know what? It's not our year. We're going to pivot into, you know, where we're going to prioritize ping pong balls, as I like to say, which is a nice way of saying tanking. Um, but that's generally when it happens now because you have something to compete for uh, with the playing tournament much later. You know, what, what we've seen is it used to be kind of by the time the trade deadline was wrapping up and at least by the beginning of March when buyout season was over, we might have had 10, maybe 11, maybe in a really competitive year, 12 teams competing for uh, spots in the, in the playoffs, but generally is around, you know, 10 teams or so. Now what we see is we, we now it's since the playing tournaments kind of come to be in, well, not that first year, cause that was in the bubble and that was a whole different system. Um, but since then it's really become a spot where we see these teams, it's 12, sometimes even 13 teams are in the mix. I mean, last year by, you know, by the time we got post trade deadline, it was really only kind of the the Pistons and the Rockets and the Spurs that weren't very good. And a couple other teams, you know, weren't good, but it was just kind of how it had gone for them. Like Orlando had such a terrible start, but they dug themselves out of that and were competitive trying to, you know, be in the playing race, you know, for quite some time. Indiana hung in for a long time, then had some injuries and then when the guys were healthy enough to play, they're like, eh, it's not really worth it. We're not going to make the run to try to be a playing team. But in general, we've seen this has really worked well to keep that competitive balance. We've seen ideas proposed. Mike Zarin, Boston Celtics assistant GM. Um, he, that, that may not be his exact title. I think he's vice president of something or other now, but that's essentially he's Brad Stevens number two in Boston. He was to Danny Ainge as well. He, he uh, proposed an idea of what he called the wheel, which was, it was basically a 30 year cycle of rotating draft position where every 30 years, a team would get the number one pick. And the reason it was 30 years, because there's 30 teams and you would rotate through the draft cycle. And a lot of people were like, you know, locking into anything for 30 years seems insane. I think that was part of why teams are like, no chance we want to do this. But I think teams are also like, yeah, but then you could run into a year where you have the golden state warriors coming off a 70 win season and an NBA title. And now all of a sudden it is, Hey, they have the number one pick too. And that's that that's something I think uh teams were like, no, I don't like that. At least this way we're assuring a at least a semi-bad team gets in there, a non-playoff team. Yes, we know every once in a while one of these teams jumps from you know the worst part of the lottery all the way up to the top and lands one of the best players. But those are you know every once in a while, and it's a complete you know random luck system 
you know, that creates that. So I, I don't think right now there's any push to do uh, really any change, never mind any kind of major, major uh, changes to the system. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Um, it, it made me go down a rabbit hole in my head and I'm just going to throw this <laughs> out there and, and see what you think. I mean, there's a ton of holes that I can even poke in it myself, but I, you know, if they did a reverse where you were the NBA, you were the NBA championship, you get the number one, the runner up is number two and all the way down. You know, I think with the new structure of the NBA with this new CBA and the super tax, it would make it super interesting because the Golden State Warriors, if they ended up winning the championship and they had the number one pick, they may not even want that number one pick or one of those players on that team are going to have to get traded because they don't want to even go even deeper into the super tax for multiple years. So I think from that standpoint, if you reversed it, uh, you know, incentivizing winning. So the teams are really trying to win. They may have to make trades that they don't necessarily want to instead of playing a five to six year window of, all right, we're going to rebuild for these four or five years and then really ramp it up after the fact, because we've uh, acquired all these low draft picks. I I just think it would be an interesting spin, especially with the super tax, because if the Phoenix suns make it far and they have all these guys that they've acquired. And I, like I said, I know I can poke a million holes in it, but it's fun to just, uh, you know, throw out and brainstorm an idea like that just to see what could come about of it. Yeah, I, I think the challenge there, which I think the easiest thing is, why would we want to make the rich get richer, right? If you're already really good, why I, would I'm, po- I'm posing it player? for more, even more movement than the NBA already does because sure. yes, they may want to keep that number one best overall pick, and, and they, you know, if the Warriors ended up getting. Weminyana or whoever wins the championship ended up getting him, you know, it would have been, you know, super fascinating on multiple levels, but are they going to want to be able to pay him? And then knowing in f- four years, you're going to have to pay him a super max because he, uh, you know, he, he ch- is going to trend towards that. So it just adds that, you know, financial wrinkle, which is where I was going with this in my mind and in, in a sure. horrible rabbit hole. <laughs> no, I, I totally get where you're going with, with that idea. I think the, I, I wrote, gosh, this was a long time ago. I wrote a whole uh, idea for how I would change the draft where I, what I would like to see is we, every team, you know, you, you, you have a cycle and, and I think a five-year cycle probably works because most contracts at the most are five-year deals. Uh, yes, we do end up with some guys on a six-year kind of situation, but for the most part, it's, it's five-year deals. What I'd like to see is every team gets an equal amount of, um, I call them chances, where it's, you know, each draft you have, you know, 25 chances or whatever it is. And then what you can do is you can trade your chances in a draft to basically say, Hey, if, if, if I'm the, you know, this past year, the Detroit Pistons and I'm terrible, if I want to trade a whole bunch of my guys and load up so that when we go into, to a draft, I have, you know, 99% of the chances of winning this draft and I can get there. Yeah, I do. And then that kind of gives me, me an opportunity to win. And, and, 
you know, there was also a lot of stuff in there. Maybe it's something I'll revisit. Now, it's unfortunate, you know, here we are in September. We're closing in on the season starting. <laughs> so it's going to be, you know, it's going to be be a while before we have downtime. Then. But, but that might be something worth revisiting where I kind of rethink through how I would tweak the, the draft and pull, pull all that out and rework it because I'm sure I've had uh, better and worse ideas since then that I can fix. But, but yeah, it, it's a, that, you know, it's a, that's interesting you know, because, thing. I mean, from what you're saying, every team would start the season off with this essentially the same amount of ping pong balls. Yep. And then you can trade ping pong balls instead of draft picks to, to a team. Yep. And something. you could still trade draft picks, but my thing would be, you would trade your draft picks after the draft. Um, you know, so, so you couldn't trade future picks down the line. You could trade future chances. Right. So if a team was like, Hey, this woman, Yama kid two years from now is coming in the league. I want to load up with 2023 draft chances. Yep. Give me all of them. That's what I'm trying to get to. You, you could still have that option. Uh- kind of thing and then and i think i had a caveat in there every team had to keep at least one in every draft so that way everybody had you know did potentially have at least one draft pick and then i switched timing around where it was going to be all right the draft would come after free agency which is how it should be anyway um you know just you know personal opinion and that's you know the opinion also about half the folks in um in in the nba as well if not you know far more than that but that's a whole other story so yeah that, that was one of the ideas i had back then when it was uh draft reform was like the big topic du jour a few <laughs> years back no super interesting kind of, uh, idea i've never even thought of something like that until you started saying it so that, that that's pretty neat to hear a, a different aspect because we've you know we've all seen different renditions of uh you know how how the draft could be changed. All right, you posted the Northwest Division recap finally. We we couldn't wait any longer with the Damian Lillard trade situation, so we had to move on and move forward hoping that maybe that would have forced that into fruition, which it has not yet. So <laughs> what else do you have next coming for us, Keith? Yeah, uh it's kind of time here before training camp starts i'm going to sit down i'm going to kind of uh, go back through and look at the best and worst uh, deals from the summer um being completely honest for a second summer in a row the worst is going to be not as long of a list as it could have been in years past um and there's going to be a couple kind of stretches in, in that um where it's like all right i'm calling it the worst but really it's not so bad so so we're going to do some stuff on that we're building out the different players which please hit me up with players you want to hear um and read about for next contract type type situations we posted Giannis Antetokounmpo uh that's up there with all the things he can kind of do now next year the year after down the line you know what it all looks like uh with, with him so um so we've kind of got all that uh out there already but that's where we're going and then we're you know gonna kind of continue to wait and see if there's a, a Damian Lillard trade or a James Harden trade and we'll have you know in-depth coverage breaking all that down when and if those, those deals happen ahead of that and then we'll kind of see what comes our way contractually in the like may do um, kind of noodling the idea of a, a piece looking at you know well what kind of roster battles do we have going on what kind of rotation uh you know battles do we have going on so we'll, we'll kind of get into some of that as well. All right. Thanks, Keith. This mailbag worked out pretty well. I think we'll do more of it throughout the season once things get ramped up and um, we'll go from there. Yeah. And thanks to everyone who put in questions. We really, really appreciate it. For Keith Smith, I am Scott Allen. Thanks for listening to the NBA Next podcast.